Hello everyone, this is Matt Hermino, the host of Herm Med, and today I'm coming to you from Miami, Miami Beach, on a colder day here in Miami, in the 50s, it's cold for us in Florida, but today uh, we're going to be talking about erythropoietin, specifically the, um, the hematologic background that supports how erythropoietin is made. And uh, really the, the doping strategies behind erythropoietin in use in cycling specifically, because it's a very controversial topic. And I want to address that and talk about like what the cycling industry has done to try and curb the use of erythropoietin and reduce the amount of doping. We're going to talk about the specific tests they use uh, to determine the amount of erythropoietin in the urine and also really what the future looks like for erythropoietin too, in terms of future tests to not only reduce the amount of doping in cycling, but also to understand really the mechanism behind how erythropoietin stimulates the erythropoietin receptor. So just a little background again on this podcast. I am a pain management palliative care pharmacist trained. I do not have a background in sports medicine by by any means, uh, really besides athletics myself. And I just have a passion for trying to teach people about the pharmacology of different drugs that can be abused and used to deter different things in professional and even collegiate and um, high school, middle school, any sporting athletic events. And um, trying to increase everyone's knowledge through some really good uh, breakdown of the foundations to a lot of these things. So... Let's get right into it and start talking about the hematologic background. And really what I want to do just to start off is go over some vocab terms. So when we're looking at a complete blood cell count or CBC count, as you'll probably hear in medical practice, are, there's a couple different vocab terms that you're going to have to know. Your RBCs or your red blood cells are also known as your erythrocytes. And there's something called like WBCs, which are your white blood cell counts. These are called leukocytes. Your hemoglobin is the iron-rich protein that carries oxygen. And there's uh, obviously carries it in an oxygen-dependent manner throughout the body. And then there's your hematocrit, which is the actual space and blood occupied by red blood cells. There's your mean corpuscular volume or your MCV, which is the average size of your red blood cells. There's the mean corpuscular hemoglobin, which is the average amount of hemoglobin in a red blood cell. And then there's something called the um, MCHC, or the mean corpuscular hemoglobin concentration. So this is basically a ratio of your MCH to your MCV, looking at the amount of hemoglobin versus the size. And then lastly, you're going to hear something called RDW, or red blood cell distribution width. And this is really just talking about the variation in size of your red blood cell, like whether it's small or large when it's produced. So what's the function of red blood cells? Before we talk about epoetin and its doping potential, the function of a red blood cell is really to transport oxygen from the lungs to oxygen-dependent tissues. And in a very acute manner, you might see an increase in your body's respiratory rate, heart rate, and some like constriction in your, um, in your blood vessels. So when you have like a decreased amount of oxygen, you have certain receptors in your kidneys that actually sense this deprivation. And as a result, they'll increase what's known as erythropoietin. 
Erythropoietin then can increase its oxygen, the oxygen carrying capacity and lead to the stimulation of red blood cells and eventually a rise in hemoglobin. And it's interesting because about 99% of circulating cells in the bloodstream are composed of red blood cells. The average lifespan for a red blood cell is about 100 to 120 days in a, in a healthy person. And we undergo about 0.8 to 1% loss of red blood cells each day. Sometimes the function of a stimulation in epoetin is due to a, something called anemia, so a lack of red blood cells. And like I mentioned, this is from like an increase in red blood cell loss. That's greater than the um, decrease in red blood cell gain. So some of the causes behind anemia could be something like, like bleeding. There could be a chemically induced reason why you're having toxicity. And you could possibly have decreased lifespan of your red blood cells. So sometimes with sickle cell anemia, we see this where they're very sickled and they don't last nearly as long as that for a healthy person. So where does epoetin kind of stem from? And like where's erythropoiesis? Erythropoiesis really occurs in our kidney, liver, and brain. And as I mentioned, it's the majority is actually stimulated in the kidneys. So you're going to get a oxygen, sen oxygen sensor in the kidney that detects a low oxygen level, leads to the stimulation of EPO, and EPO can bind to what's known as the EPO receptor, so the EPOR. Activation of EPO receptor occurs via a linkage to two EPO receptors, and this leads to a conformational change in the structure of the receptor and downstream signaling. It's very interesting because epoetin, only half of the expected dose of epoetin occupies, half of the expected effect of a dose of epoetin only needs about 7% of the epo receptors to be occupied. So a very small amount is required to actually stimulate erythropoiesis. And erythropoiesis is really like what we, what we were talking about. So erythropoietin is stimulated, leads to the production of what's known as erythroblast, and then a reticulocyte, an immature red blood cell, and then that leads to the production of more red blood cells. Half-life, or the, I guess the duration of effect of a reticulocyte is very small. It's only about one to five days, so it's very different than that of the um, red blood cell itself. And the origin of actually epoetin is kind of interesting. I mean, like anemia used to actually cause, used to be um, treated with blood transfusions. And this actually caused a risk of iron overload and infection, immune reactions as well. So in 1983, they successfully cloned an epoetin gene, which was known as the epoetin alpha and beta. And this was cloned from Chinese hamster ovarian cells. And really, when you're giving epoetin, uh, as I mentioned, we already kind of went over the effects, but I just want to mention that when epoetin re reacts with the epoetin receptor, it's leading to a proliferation of erythrocyte precursor cells, and it's basically just decreasing the amount of apoptosis, so the breakdown of the cell. And um, before we go into like he the recombinant human epoetin that we that we cloned and found. It's, there's an interesting point with epoetin in the receptor. Basically, the amount of time that it's interacting with the receptor is more important than the concentration. 
And you kind of see this with certain antibiotics that we use, beta-lactams, I guess, in particular. But basically, all this means is you could give a massive dose of epoetin, but it's not necessarily amount, doesn't depend on the amount of the concentration spiking. It's more about maintaining a concentration that actually leads to the magnitude of the red blood cells being produced. So in, in literature, this concentration spike that isn't as impressive leads to about a fourfold increase in red blood cell production versus a maintained concentration that doesn't necessarily spike and dissipate. It actually leads to about a thousandfold increase in production. So it's a much, it's a bigger difference. And we just want to take that into account when we're actually like dosing epoetin. So, so going back to the recombinant human epoetin, it's half-life in an IV dose is about 5 to 11 hours. And its volume of distribution isn't that high, so it's limited, has limited extravascular distribution. So we had to find a way to administer this where it would last longer and it would have a longer, like, longer half-life and interact with the EPO receptor still to an important degree. So by giving it subcutaneously, subcutaneously in the fat, it has a slower absorption and a lower peak than that of IV. And its half-life is about 20 to 25 hours. So the amount that's actually absorbed or the bioavailability is about 20 to 40%. When we're talking about the clearance of epoetin, there's a couple different pathways that are thought to clear epoetin. There's the, um, the kidneys and liver, which are epoetin receptor expressing cells. And this used to be like thought of as the major route of reducing it because as I mentioned, hemoglobin and oxygen concentrations are like sensed in the kidneys, but there's also a lot of blood flow going through the kidneys in general. Very large magnitude of your blood goes to your kidneys, but it's actually been shown that um, chemotherapy can decrease the amount of an EPO receptor. So uh, the bearing cells that have um, EPO receptors this decreases EPO clearance. So there might be more of a correlation with like EPO receptor itself than like just what's going on in the kidney and liver. There's actually a large part of the breakdown, likely that is through the interstitium and the lymphatic system. So that's why when you give it through sub-Q route, its absorption is much, much lower. Um... But yeah, so basically we want to, when we looked at epoetin and we developed recombinant epoetin, we wanted to find something in practice where we could decrease the amount of visits a patient has to come in to get epoetin, and we want something that they could have a, a molecule that has molecular stability and decrease the amount of immune reactions and increase the amount of storage and improve our delivery system. So... We've gone about a different, couple different ways of developing types of epoetin. So there's something called darbopoietin, which is an alteration in the amount of ciliolic acid content and has a couple more carbohydrate chains because epoetin is, 40% of its mass is actually carbohydrates, believe it or not. So we found a way to alter that and came up with darbopoietin. And this extended the half-life about three times that of epoetin alpha, but it decreased the receptor affinity. And it turns out, once again, that's kind of okay if it's decreasing receptor affinity. It's more about increased production, increased half-life. 
So down the road, they created another form of epoidin known as pegylated epoidin. Pegylated epoidin is something that basically has a water shell that's surrounding the molecule and it allows for a longer time period for it to break down. So pegylated epoidin's half-life is about 134 hours. That's through IV and about 139 hours through subcutaneous route. <clears throat> so about four times that of epoidin. And once again, it has decreased affinity for the EPO receptor, but has a much higher half-life. So why I mention this is, I mean, like, you're not going to, as an athlete, you're not going to, if you're doping, you're going to want to avoid these. You're going to want to avoid darbopoietin, alpha, pegylated epopoietin. You're going to avoid anything that has a long half-life because you want that to clear your system. You don't want that to stay in your system. It's probably the last thing you want. And when we're talking about, we can now start to venture down the road of why this is a banned substance in cycling by the World Anti-Doping Agency. So there's three criteria to doping, WADA or WADA. It has the potential to enhance performance, which is definitely a possibility with epoetin. It can represent an actual or potential health risk to the athlete, which it also could do. <clears throat> and it violates the spirit of sport or the code, which epoetin at a very professional a heightened level of sport, even the slightest percentage increase in its effect could possibly do that. So how is WADA or the World Anti-Doping Agency kind of looking at the tests? How do they test it in the blood? How do they test epoetin? Well, nowadays they use what's called a biological passport, which is basically a look at your entire CBC count over a long period of time. So it's trending any fluctuations in your personal biologics. It's the most accurate way. But before this, they used a couple different things. One was called IEF or isoelectric focusing. And this basically separates molecules by its isoelectric point. And it is able to do this because its charge depends on the pH of a molecule. So it can separate it based on its pH and charge. And then there's also something called the SDS page method, which basically determines the molecular weight and also the yield or the quantity of an unknown protein after electrophoresis. So really understanding the tests is important, but also understanding the effect it can have on your athletics is really important. And there was a big, big systematic literature report that came out that analyzed the effects of erythropoietin. And they found a couple of different interesting points. This massive systematic literature, it was able to look at a, the effect of epoetin in a large variety of factors, low, moderate, high dosing, and mostly non-athletes. That's the, that's the vast majority of the studies they looked at. And what they were able to conclude in this massive systematic literature is that low, it had low to moderate evidence to suggest a low, medium, or high dose of epoetin or recombinant human epoetin enhances athletic performance. There's not a dose-dependent relationship. It's not very clear. But the ergogenic effects are seen most during maximal exercise intensities. And submaximal effects were similar to that of placebo. And why does this matter? Submaximal effects are really endurance activities, aka cycling, um, to a large degree. But there's a bunch of limitations to this study. I mean, 
The study noted that it had lack of data in professional athletes, huge limitation. It's only done in male participants, and they had a lot of small sample sizes in non-binded studies. So I want to focus on one of the studies that really it got this claim to fame for having sub-maximal effects that were similar to placebo. And this was a study by Huberger and others that was conducted in the Netherlands in 2017. And this is a double-blind placebo-controlled randomized controlled trial of 48 non-professional cyclists that were stratified into a couple different age groups from 18 to 34 and 35 to 50. And these participants were given epoetin with the primary outcome of looking at exercise performance or your max power output and your max oxygen consumption. And they also looked at submaximal mean power or max oxygen consumption and their maximum, uh, their actual race times itself. They looked at a Mont- the Montevento, which is a race time that's in France. And what they found was that exercise performance for your max consumption, your max power put, output, and your max oxygen consumption was better in a higher in the Epoetin group versus control. And they found that the submaximal data was really similar at day 46 between Epoetin and the placebo group. Even the race times from the specific group, the length of one of the races, the Mont Vento race times for placebo group was one hour, 40 minutes and 15 seconds. And in the, um, the erythropoietin group, one hour, 40 minutes and 32 seconds. So this is one of the limited pieces of literature that actually looked at race times in the erythropoietin. But once again, it doesn't have athletics in there. Uh, it doesn't have professional athletics, I should say. And we have to think about it. Professional athletics, even the slightest percentages of changes in your athletic performance can influence a race. And when we look at, like, who was doping and who was winning, I mean, like, look at, like, I know Lance Armstrong is an amazing athlete, but at the same time, he admitted to doping, like, later down the road many, many a times. Many people on the tour were doping. It was almost like a very common thing not to dope. So it definitely has some athletic performance enhancing effects. And now we've established like really what are the athletic performancing effects to a degree. There needs to be more literature, but we definitely know that there's a potential there. We need to now look at the ways to test how we can detect it. And I kind of want to talk about the older methods because there's a couple of pieces of literature that looked at different methods of testing it. And This is done by Huberger and others, where they looked at 48 trained cyclists. And they gave all these trained cyclists, they gave them either epoetin or normal saline. And basically, like, well, actually, they mostly received epoetin. In the first four doses, they received a 5,000 international unit injection subcutaneously. And then in the next four doses, they could receive six, eight, or 10,000 10, units to ideally raise your hemoglobin 10 to 15%, because that's the area of literature that shows the greatest increase in effect. And if they maintain their levels around this increase in hemoglobin, they received only 2,000 international units each week. 
if they overachieved these levels, then they gave them normal saline. So all these athletes were getting epoetin. If they're overachieving, they're getting normal saline. And they're also taking oral iron and oral vitamin C as well to boost iron consumption, uh, absorption. So as I mentioned, the SDS page is one of the urine methods that they used in actually detecting epoetin. And there was a sense, there's a couple things like that we want to talk about in these studies. And we're going to be talking about sensitivity and specificity. So sensitivity is the ability to rule out a negative. So sensitivity, think of N negative. So sensitivity, you can um, rule out a negative and specificity or uh, specificity or ruling a positive in. So when you have a high sensitivity, you can have a high likelihood that there's not a false negative. And then if you have a high specificity, you can have a high likelihood that there's not a false positive. So this study looked at SDS page. It looked at the IEF. And then it looked at the biological passport and it analyzed all three methods of detecting erythropoietin. In the SDS page urine, it was found that the sensitivity was 64%, leaving a false negative rate about 36%. Specificity was 100%. Of the 5% of samples that were non-detectable, 83% had received erythropoietin. And when we're looking at the amount of sensitivity or the ability for a false negative to occur, which is a big no-no in this area, a false negative, they looked at before and after maximal efforts. They did a maximal effort kind of analysis from 4, 5, 11, 12, and 13 days after receiving these doses. They found that after about 11 days, the sensitivity dropped from 57% and below. So that's a pretty important cutoff criteria. At 11 days, the sensitivity was about roughly 29%. At 12 days, 18%. And 13, it was 0% overall. So really see the biggest drop off from 7 to 11 days in this SDS page. The next method that they used was the IEF urine. And this was found to have an overall sensitivity of 58.6% with a false negative rate of 41.4%, which is very high. Meaning a lot of times athletes may have a falsely negative urine drug screen when they actually could have erythropoietin in their system. Specificity was 94%, I will note. And 21% were undetectable as well, which is really bad. That's about a fifth of the labs were undetectable for this study. 75% 75% of those patients had erythropoietin. So when we're looking at the overall change and we're going back to the maximal effort. So this study, like it's part of the same study, they did a maximal effort. So they looked at the sensitivity before and after a maximal effort in a certain days after giving the dose. Around like day, let's say day 11, before a maximal effort, its sensitivity is about 42%. And then after that dissipates to zero. So that's not good. And after 11 days of maximal effort, it is basically undetectable. Overall, when we look at the sensitivity for the IEF urine, at about six to seven days, it's 22 to 25%. And it just gets less and less from there. Even really three to five days after after using epoetin, it's only 50 to 68%. So 
it still has a high likelihood of a false negative. So I would say IEF urine is much worse than SDS page. And overall, I know there are better methods to use besides either of these, but SDS page would be performing better. The next up was the biological passport. And they analyzed, like I said, they analyzed your CBC, so your hemoglobin, hematocrit, reticulocyte count, MCV. Like they looked at all these kind of things and they had uh, specific reviewers that looked at these. And it was determined that the sensitivity was between reviewer one was a 91.3% and between reviewer two was a 91.3% as well. The specificity for reviewer number one was 100% and 95.8% in reviewer two. So overall, there was about a false negative rate of about 9%. And this isn't perfect. So right now, I mean, like with biological passport, there's about a 10% opportunity, even with a biological passport to still kind of get away with doping and using epoidin. And it's a small sample size, but I mean, like, when you break this down, like, the biological passport's definitely the best method, I would say, at this point, but there's still that opportunity to get away with doping and using epoidin, especially if you're using microdoses of epoidin. If you use microdoses of epoidin, then we have to kind of look at understanding we know it's half-life and everything, but at the same time, if it's much of a lower, it's a lower dose. So as I mentioned, you really just have to keep your epoidin dose at a certain concentration to actually stimulate the most red blood cell production. Not about concentration necessarily. So the days of massive epo, do, EPO dosing are kind of behind us. If they're dosing, they're using very micro doses, small periods or small windows in time where they think that they can get away with it because they're not going to get tested in a certain time period. So the last piece I want to talk about is the future of detecting epoetin in the blood or in the urine. And this is a study that just came out by Hidalgo, Hidalgo and a couple other authors looking at the epoetin receptor. And really what they found was that EPO increases cell size and produces maturity of erythroblasts in a dose-dependent manner, which is interesting. It was shown that about 20 international units per kilogram every other day for three weeks increased hemoglobin 5%, and then for seven weeks it increased hemoglobin 10 to 15%, which is that dose effect that we're looking at, that 10 to 15% range. So what did we see when we gave EPO? They measured reticulocyte count, and they also looked at MCV count, and they noticed that on a charted, they looked at a chart and they looked at reticulocyte count and they found that it was dropping after EPO was stopped. But they noticed that the MCV or the mean corpuscular volume continued to rise. So this isn't really surprising because reticulocyte counts, as I mentioned, are really immature red blood cells. So those only last a couple of days. But MCVs are like the overall size or the difference. It's the volume, the volume of the actual red blood cell itself. So I think that maybe charting MCVs in the future might not be a bad idea versus just urine itself. <clears throat> but most importantly, they looked at the EPO receptor and they noticed that EPO receptor signaling increased cell size in an EPO dose dependent manner, which led to larger increases in reticulocytes. And they noticed that EPO receptors really began increasing in size in early erythroblasts. So there may be more, um, it might be more sensitive 
area than actually just looking at MCV. So RDW was something that was actually increased too. So perhaps RDW and MCV are some sensitive things you can look at in the future as some data interpretations, but it's really the EPO receptor. And it was shown that EPO receptors were actually, it was independent of iron supplementation and the the HRI or heme pathway. So this is something completely different. And I think it's really the future, like for epoetin dosing or epoetin monitoring for dosing. So those are some of my thoughts on just really the breakdown of the hematological stuff that we're looking at. And you're seeing a, a, a vast decrease in the amount of epoetin use, so I will say. Since 2008 and the crackdown in a lot of professional athletes, there's been a drastic decrease in the amount of erythropoietin used since the Lance Armstrong era and a lot of athletes, the majority of the groups, just all using erythropoietin. It's almost like baseball steroids. But after the biological passport was really created in 2008, before that, before its creation, they only found three riders that were convicted of actually having erythropoietin positive levels. And then like the first three years after they did the biological passport, they found 26. So it's very clear that mapping someone's biology is like definitely the future and like one way to look at any changes in hemoglobin or MCV or RDW and identify if they're possibly doping. But there's that potential for a false negative rate. It's still there. It's not perfect. And I think that's where our EPO receptor analysis kind of comes in. But yeah, so those are some of my thoughts. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this podcast. Tune in for the next episode where we're going to be talking about testosterone use, uh, single dose, multiple dose, kind of analyzing its effects in athletics. Thank you guys very much. Once again, this is Matthew Hermano with Hermed, and I hope you have a very good day. Thank you.